Welcome to Paranormal Almanac. With your host, Kurt Sandvig. That's right, I'm your host, Kurt Sandvig, and on this week's edition of Paranormal Almanac, let's talk about some more bizarre, unsolved mysteries. But first, as always, we have shout-outs. That's right, we have shout-outs going out to producer Chris Jones, Damien and Daniel, Eric, Joe, Marisol, Tanya, Aaron, Alexandra, Amy, April, Ashley, Becca, Brandon, Chuck, Cole, Dan, Donald, Dorian, Isabel, Jason, Joshua, Lauren, Lauren and Phil Mangano, the Lauren McCune. Hey, howdy, hi. Happy wedding day. Lindsay Hahn, Manning, Martin, Michael, Seth, Robin, Sean, Sherry, Todd, Jamie, and Elijah Hendrickson, Trudy, Vanessa, Veronica, Vicky, Art Muffin, Autumn, Carolyn, Cindy, Derek, Dill, Ezra, George, Harley, Heidi, Roger, Ian, Izzard, Breath, Jeff, T, Juliana, Carrie, Connie, Christopher, Lawrence, Leo, Liam, Loki, Megan, Anashi, Paul, Ricardo, Russell, Seth, Scustin, Spencer, Suzanne, Tim, Voidtech, Audra, Bob, Cindy, Devin, Devin, Elizabeth, Gamer, fan. Oh, that's, uh, that's Daniel. J. Mark, Jade, Jerry, Kenneth, Kim, Laura, Melody, Paula, Ricardo, Simon, Terminal Animal, what's that? Will, Alicia, and Jen with a very special shout out to Joe Teague and Stitch. Once again, this episode is produced by Chris Jones. Head on over to patreon.com slash paranormal almanac to be a patron today with exclusive episodes just for the patrons. Hope you guys like it over there. Thank you so much for the patrons to making this show a betch, a much better show. I said a better show. A much better show. Thank you again. Patreon.com slash Paranormal Almanac. Also, you can head on over to storeenvy.com, search Paranormal Almanac for all your Paranormal Almanac needs. All of your shirts and merchandise and everything's right there for you. Alrighty, let's get right on in. To paranormal news, because there is a lot of it today. What time is it? It's time for paranormal news. And the first story in paranormal news is almost, I would say, say it with me type news. Shots fired at Montana man mistaken for Bigfoot. That's right. Say it with me. Don't fucking shoot Bigfoot because the best is you're shooting at a Bigfoot, which you shouldn't do. And the worst is you're shooting at a man, a Montana man mistaken for a Bigfoot. So just don't shoot Bigfoot. The story says Helena man reports being shot at multiple times in the North Hills officials say. So they didn't even just shoot him at, shoot at him once. They shot at him multiple times. A Helena man, a Helena man target shooting on, what? This is terribly written. Oh, I get what they're saying. So there was a Helena man who was out target shooting on public land near Helena, reported being shot at multiple times by another man who, quote, mistook him for Bigfoot. Look, if you get shot at once by somebody because they mistook you for Bigfoot, yeah, they mistook you for Bigfoot. But if this person is repeatedly shooting you or shooting at you over and over again, I have a feeling he's just trying to shoot you. But the story says 
The man who identified himself to dispatchers as being 27 and from Helena was reportedly setting up targets on BLM land in the North Hills when he says a bullet hit about three feet to his left and then another bullet hit to his right before he ran for cover and heard even more shots. The man told dispatchers he was then he then confronted the shooter who told him, he quote, well, you're not wearing any orange. I thought he was Bigfoot. Yeah, this guy shouldn't have a gun. Uh, the Helena man told dispatchers the incident occurred Sunday, but he did not report it until Monday, saying he didn't think it was necessary. No, no, it's very necessary. He reported that, ah, doesn't matter what the vehicle was or the license plate. He said he wanted the area checked and if found for the shooter to be talked about safe shooting in the area, but he didn't want to pursue charges. He noted that despite a desire to not pursue charges, the allegations are serious and could warrant a charge of attempted negligent homicide. Yeah, you think? The dude repeatedly shot at somebody, and the only thing he had to say was, well, you're not wearing orange, and I thought you were Bigfoot? Come on, man. But, again, don't shoot Bigfoot. All right, the next one comes from us uh, from uh, TikTok, and someone posted it today, as a matter of fact. It's a video about two dogs barking. They're in uh, separate kennels. I've got it playing right now, but I've turned off the sound because it's just dogs barking. You don't need to hear that. You know what the sound of dogs barking is. When all of a sudden the dogs go silent at the exact same time, their ears perk up like they hear something. Now there's one dog, it's all black. It's in the main kennel, I guess you would call it, um, or cage, whatever you want to call it. And then wait for it, Kurt. Here we go. All of a sudden it seems to like the collar seems to come right off, startles the dog so much that it backs up and into the wall. So what they're saying is that a ghost removed the dog collar. I don't know what to think of this. Like I said, I'm going to put it on the Facebook pages, both of them, but it could be, just could be for the skeptics, it could be the dog was barking so incessantly over and over and over again that it loosened up, like maybe the clasp wasn't exactly clasped on the, the collar, and the repeated barking made it pop open, which startles the dog and makes him back up into the cage. So I don't know what to think of it. I'll throw it on the Facebook pages. You guys tell me what you think. Do you think it's a dog that's, uh, for some reason, a ghost is trying to take the collar off of it? Or do you think that it's just a collar that just pops off? Up next in Paranormal News, I'm going to cruise through these. Under $100,000 Sunday, that's right. A house is up for sale and the owner says... It's a haunted house, circa 1888, North Carolina. Oh, it's actually just been increased. The price has just been increased since I grabbed this article two days ago, three days ago. The price has increased from $99,000 to $200,000 because of the increased interest in it because of the ghost. That's right. Uh, the amazing brick beauty known as Via Fortuna is said to be a haunted house. It's listed on the National Register of Historic Places, yeah, it needs work, not to say that it's not livable because the current owner does live there and he's selling it for a for sale by owner for $200,000. The first owner was William G. Jennings, a brick manufacturer. And uh, let me skip ahead to the ghost puff. I don't care about the architectural history. It's three bedrooms, one bath, in case you're, worried, in case you're wondering. Um, but they're saying, yes, there is a ghost in the house doesn't seem to be a malevolent spirit, but a spirit nonetheless. So if you're looking for a haunted house, he's got one for you. And I mean, it's a pretty house. It does need some work, but it's a very, very pretty house. Uh, I don't know really what the area is like from this house, but I will post this on the Facebook pages as well, because you guys all seem to love all the haunted houses for sale. And don't worry, 
there's going to be more in paranormal news. Up next in paranormal news, U.S. Navy footage shows spherical UFO flying around before diving into the sea. This is a continuation of those videos that came out a while ago that the Navy took of the UFOs, and they were like, what the hell is that thing? Well, this one is a spherical-shaped UFO that they're watching, they're monitoring, they're monitoring, monitoring, and it actually goes into the ocean. They said, even though the video is short, it appears to show the object capable of traveling through both air and water, making it more advanced than any known vehicle, military or otherwise. The object itself is incredibly small. Radar shows that it's a solid ball measuring just six feet in diameter, but it's fast. It reaches speeds of up to 254 kilometers per hour during its air flight. Then it goes under the water, and then they monitored it for a while before it flew back out of the water. So yeah, they're right. Nothing that I know of that we have can do that. So just yet another little piece of the Navy UFO puzzle. And they've said in the past, there is a lot more footage that just hasn't been released yet. And it seems to be trickling out more and more. So thankfully. Already up next in paranormal news, gutted West Village building said to be haunted by restless ghost of gay saint man. Gay street man? I don't know if it's gay street or gay saint. We'll find out in a minute. Is now up for sale. A West Village house with a resident ghost is back on the market just in time for Halloween. The historic, I'm going to assume it's street. They don't, they, I'm going to assume it's street. The historic Gay Street property on the corner of Waverly Place is rumored to be inhabited by a restless spirit who walks the creaking floorboards at night. Legend has it a man in a top hat and tails has been spotted in the building. Some local historians say it's former mayor Jimmy Walker who once owned the house. I wouldn't go in there right now. It's legendary that ghosts live there, says a guy who has rented an apartment across the street from, for the, uh, from the place for two decades. That place would be like moving into The Shining. Eh, not really. The property recently put on the market by Realtors Corcoran comes in with a $4.2 million price tag, ghosts included. Built in 1827 and housed a speakeasy before Walker bought it for his mistress, Betty Compton, in the 1920s. It was then owned by puppeteer Frank Paris, who designed the original Howdy Doody, and then by Scientific American editor Dennis Flanagan and his wife. Uh, he sold it in 2007, where it's been gutted and is now an empty shell. Uh, Barbara Flanagan, the wife, says, I never saw him. I never heard him. I never smelled anything except onions. The stairs were creaky, but you know what? It's a 200-year-old house. Now it looks more like a haunted house. I guess it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Other Gay Street residents say that the rumors about the street's uninvited house guests go with the territory. There are ghosts in all of these buildings. They talk. They're living things, these buildings. It just happens. It's very spiritual. Whoever moves in will be creative. Some people like ghosts. They think it keeps the burglars away. So another haunted house up for sale. Already up next in paranormal news. I was part of a UFO cover-up, says former U.S. Air Force photographer, Dr. Jacob, Dr. Robert Jacobs, accidentally captured in high-resolution footage a saucer-shaped craft firing mysterious beams of light at a U.S. nuclear-capable missile as it flew at 8,000 miles per hour over California. And if you're saying, what? When did that happen? Well, it was a while ago. There was a press conference on the subject of extraterrestrial interference in nuclear tests led by retired Air Force Captain Robert Salas from the Paradigm Research Group Dr. Robert Jacobs, who led a team photographing early U.S. nuclear missiles, admitted nuclear missiles, admitted, I was part of a U.S. Air Force cover-up. He explains that in the early 1960s, he led a team 
making detailed films of missile launches because, as he explained in those days, a lot of the missiles blew up on the launch pad, and the high-resolution movie footage helped scientists to work out why they would blow up. Now, he describes on September 14, 1964, he was using an ultra-high-resolution film camera to capture footage of an 8,000-mile-per-hour missile that was fitted with a radar chaff, radar chaff dispenser to throw potential Soviet defenses off target. He says it was only after the test that he was called into the office of a superior officer, Major Florence J. Mansman, boy, that's a Mansman kind of name, who demanded to know what he'd been doing. Only when Jacob saw the footage he captured the previous day did he realize what the guy was talking about because in slow motion, a saucer-shaped UFO could be seen around the fast-moving dummy warhead and firing tightly focused beams of light at it. First, he was asked if he was playing a prank. He said, nope, I don't know what the hell that thing was, but it looks like a UFO to me. And they said, you're never to say that word again. As far as you, you're concerned, this never happened. Throughout the meeting, Man's Man was flanked by two silently menacing men in gray suits whose Jacob believed, who Jacobs believed were the CIA. And uh, he actually kept the secret for about 17 years. Then he started to tell people about it. And now he talks about it uh, at conventions. So, yeah, closely guarded secrets, not so closely guarded anymore. Alrighty, up uh, three more stories. Up next in Paranormal News, strange UFOs flying together over New Jersey caught on video. This is a brand new one. They said that um, video of the incident shows eerie lights over the city of Patterson moving as a group. Resident uh, Lewis Stevens told PIX11 News he lost count of how many objects there were and described them as flying white circles that changed into different shapes. He says, you see it on YouTube, and it's always somewhere out in the Nevada desert somewhere. The shock of it is more like, if this is real, I mean, we're looking at it. What are we exactly looking at? He watched the object for five minutes before they went over a nearby hill. When asked about the sighting, the FAA said it looked into it and checked with local Air Force control, but noted nothing was reported. They, uh, some people think that it's probably, some skeptics say it's probably, or uh, the orbs are probably just actually drones, which it very well might be, and for some reason the video is not coming up, so... I'll take their word, and I do not know what to think of that one. All righty, let's wrap it up. we got two more stories. The next one. There's another haunted house. Well, not a haunted house. There's another house with a, um, with a history that's up for sale. Now, this one is at 1428 North Genesee Avenue, right here in Los Angeles, California. And it's a house that I can guarantee almost every one of you has seen at least once. That's because... It's the house from A Nightmare on Elm Street. That's right. The house. The house that you always see, what's her name in, living in there, is up for sale. The Nightmare Before Elm Street house is up for sale for $3.2 million. It's a three-bed, five-bath house. And uh, you're going to get a lot of people coming by to take photos in front of the house because, like I said, it's the like main, I think it's Nancy's main house um, from Nightmare on Elm Street. So if you're into that movie, that house is for sale. And he have $3.25 million. Last but not least, family captures video of possible UFO in Keokuk. Keokuk? Sure, why not? They, uh, from Wadabada, where is it? There we go. A family was driving near Keokuk, K-E-O-K-U-K. I'm sure I said that wrong. Keokuk? I don't know. A few months ago for a family road trip when they noticed something bizarre. What looked like a star appeared in the sky during the daytime hours. The individual who shared it um, said that 
In the video, you can hear his six-year-old daughter claiming that what they were seeing was actually aliens. So let's let's watch this video. Something. Oh, dude, that is moving. I think it was moving. No, it's not alien. Oh, it's alien. She's right. Listen to the girl. No, it's too big to be a drone. Oh, what is that? I see it's flying. I gotta admit, this one. It's a ginormous drone over here, Kaiowa. What is it? Kaioka? All right, all right, all right. It just keeps going. I gotta admit, it is a very big, white, glowing object in the sky. It's too far away for me to say it's a drone. It's too far. It's definitely not a drone. It's too big for that. But. I don't know if it's a helicopter. I don't know what it exactly was, but it, it is exactly what it is. It's a UFO. It's an unidentified flying object. All righty. Let's close up Paranormal News. Like, take a quick break, and we'll be right back. We are back. All righty. On this edition, let's talk about some more Bizarre Unsolved Mysteries. I know I've talked about Unsolved Mysteries on this uh, podcast in the past, but um, these these are more of the bizarre variety. Some paranormal, some not, but all equally bizarre and baffle people to this day. Now, I know in October I always kind of do spooky episodes, and I want to try and do just like ghost episodes or poltergeists or, you know, that the spookiest of the spookiest. Well, I got to say... In my opinion, this one's no exception. It's just a little bit different. These unsolved, bizarre mysteries, cases, whatever you want to call them, have been gone over again and again, some for like multiple decades without any solutions. Now, to me, that's spooky. The thought of, you know, disappearing without a trace for no reason, yeah, I'm going to say that's spooky. The thought of something evil or sinister watching me, yeah, it's spooky as hell to me. The thought of an innocent-looking neighborhood and innocent, seemingly innocent neighbors, yet something bizarre happens, all too spooky for me. How many of your neighbors do you guys know? Think about it. Like, honestly, today, how many of your neighbors do you know? How many do you trust? And how many times have you seen, like, news stories where the neighbors describe, like, a serial killer as, oh, he's always so quiet and pleasant? Yeah. These are those kinds of bizarre stories that I'm going to be talking about. The shit that is spooky that I'm going to be talking about. So on this edition, I want to tell you about some of the most bizarre, unsolved mysteries out there, starting with the Westfield Watcher. Now, this was a story that I've been wanting to do for a very long time. And, you know, there's a billion, there's a list of stories that I have some form of the outline done, but not completely done or some of the stories that, like, like witches. I've been wanting to do an episode about witches forever, but I can't find that hook that, that gets me that goes, yep, I got this episode, and I can crank it out, and it's going to be a great one. And until I get that hook, I, they just kind of sit there in my list. Well, this is one of those examples until I started to look at another story on this episode and went, oh, my God, this is the best episode to start with the Westfield Watcher. This story is the perfect example of, you know how uh, you watch something and go, well, why didn't they just move? You know, like you're watching like a movie or a TV show and, and something happens and you go, well, just move, just leave. Like poltergeist. Well, then you just get the fuck out of the house. Well, this story has a ton of that and 
an actual reason why they couldn't, quote, just move. Alrighty, for this one, let's go back to, oh wait, where's my back to, back in time noise. Back to 2014 in Westfield, New Jersey, when the Broadus family, Derek, the dad, Maria, the mom, and their two children finally spend all of their saved money and they purchased their dream house, like this dream home on a nice, like, tree-lined neighborhood filled with beautiful houses, white picket fences. It's, a, you know, it's away from the hustle and bustle. It's a nice, quiet little neighborhood. But before they even move in, they get a bizarre, ominous, anonymous letter. All right, here's the first letter they received. Yeah, first. Sorry, spoiler, there will be more letters. 657 Boulevard has been the subject of my family for decades now, and as it approaches its 110th birthday, I have been put in charge of watching and waiting for its second coming. My grandfather watched the house in the 1920s, and my father watched it in the 1960s. It is now my time. Do you know the history of the house? Do you know what lies within the walls of 657 Boulevard? Why are you here? I will find out. Now, the letter also goes on to mention the uh, Derek and Maria's Honda minivan parked in front of the house and the numerous contractors working on the house, the cars they drove, and their tools. The watcher, as he's now known, wrote, Tisk, tisk, tisk. Bad move. You don't want to make 657 Boulevard unhappy. This letter went on to mention their two or three children. I thought it was three. Oh, I said two earlier. I believe it's three children. doesn't matter. They're children. Yes, they're three children. Sorry. There's three children. There's Derek, Maria, and three children. Uh, the letter goes on to mention their three children and asked if there was a fourth on the way. Quote, Do you need to fill the house with the young blood I requested? Better for me. It also mentioned before too long... He would know all of the children's names and use them to lure the children away. And the letter ended with this. Who am I? Hundreds of cars pass by the house every single day. Maybe I'm in one. Check all the windows that can be seen from 657 Boulevard. Perhaps I am in one. Welcome, my friends. Welcome. Let the party begin. Signed, The Watcher. Yeah, that's a freaky freaking letter. First of all, it's it's very ominous. Then it ends with like, hey, welcome, my friends. Welcome. Let the party begin. No, no. You just said a lot of fucked up shit about our children, about young blood, about specifics going on in the house. The fact that this house has been watched for the grandfather watched the house in the 20s. The father watched it in the 60s. It's a spooky, spooky letter. All right. So it was past 10 p.m. when Derek, the dad, you know, saw the letter, opened it, read the letter, and rightfully freaks the fuck out and makes sure, boom, all the doors are locked, and boom, all the lights are turned out. Once he knew that no one could see them from the outside of the house, he calls the police. The next day, an officer showed up, and he read, and the officer, like, read the letter for himself. Then, after, like, a few routine questions to Derek and Maria, and then a look around the outside of the house and the inside of the house, the officer, the officer suggested that Derek remove a piece of construction equipment from the back porch so that no one could use it to smash a window and break in, and 
kind of like, you got to start, you know, this is weird. This seems kind of uh, ominous, which it was. You got to start thinking about how to protect your family. So Derek does this. He goes outside. He moves that uh, construction equipment, locks all the doors, locks all the windows, make sure it's all airtight, and goes back to the family in their old home. Remember, they haven't even moved in yet, and they've already gotten a letter. Now, as soon as he gets back to the old house, he sent an email to John and Andrea Woods, who were the previous owners of this new house, to ask them, you know, if they've ever received a letter. And if so, what did it say? He said, I asked the Woods to bring me... Oh, I'm sorry. And what did it say? And the, and the Woods said, oh, yeah. It asked the, the Woods to bring me young blood, and it looks like they listened. That was like the letter to the Woods. He said, like, you know, I asked the house, hey, have the Woods bring me young blood. It looks like they listened. So uh, Andrea says, yeah, you know, in the entire 23 years they had lived in that house, they never received any letters until just a few days before the transfer of the house deed to the Broadduses, to Derek and Maria, they got a letter about that young blood and the weird shit, and, but they didn't think anything of it. They were like, well, that's weird. That's creepy. So they just threw the letter out. So now... The Woods are really concerned because Derek's gotten a letter. They got a letter just before they moved out. So both the Woods and Maria, the mom, go to the police with this new information. They meet with Detective Leonard Lugo, who advised them to keep the letters a closely guarded secret. Don't mention it to anyone, not family, not friends, not the neighbors. Nobody that didn't already know about them should know about these letters. He said especially not any of these new neighbors. He told the Woods the same thing, and they did just that. The Broadduses continued the work on the new house. Derek canceled an out-of-town work trip to stay close to the family at uh, Detective Lugo's suggestion, and the kids were kept within eyesight at all times at the new house. That's right. They brought the kids to the new house while the house is being worked on and while like the mom and dad are painting inside. They let the kids wander the backyard a bit, and Maria said, you know, sometimes I would have to call them by their name so they would come running back. But I always kept them basically within eyesight. And that's going to be important in just a little bit. Alrighty, so the neighbors start to come by to meet their new neighbors. And for some reason, Derek's like, oh, yeah, come inside and see the new construction. And, you know, let's talk about everything. Let's meet up. One of the neighbors even said to either Derek or Maria that, quote, having... Young blood in the neighborhood would be welcome. Now look, skeptics, I know. It's just an expression. Young blood is an expression. But still, that neighbor better have become suspect number one to the Broadduses almost immediately because I don't think I've ever used that expression. Oh, ooh, there's young blood in our neighborhood. No, that's creepy. That's creepy as shit. That should be, that neighbor should have been suspect number one. All righty. They're still working on the house. Seemingly, everything went quieted down, and like I said earlier, spoiler, they get a second letter. Now, this one mentions the construction workers, the personal belongings being brought into the house, and even complimented the construction workers on the dumpster they chose. But more importantly, this letter talks about the ages and the nicknames of all three children. That's right. Thanks, Maria, for screaming their names in the backyard and giving the watcher exactly what he was looking for. The letter uh, basically said, 
657 Boulevard is anxious for you to move in. It has been years and years since the young blood ruled the hallways of the house. Have you found all the secrets it holds yet? Will the young blood play in the basement, or are they too afraid to go down there alone? I would be very afraid if I were them. It is far away from the rest of the house. If you were upstairs, you would never hear them scream. Will they sleep in the attic, or will you all sleep on the second floor? Who has the bedrooms facing the street? I'll know as soon as you move in. It will help me to know who is in which bedroom. Then I can plan better. All of the windows and doors in 657 Boulevard allow me to watch you and track you as you move through the house. Who am I? I am the watcher and have been have uh, I am the watcher and have been in control of 657 Boulevard for the better part of two decades now. The Woods family turned it over to you. It was their time to move on and kindly sold it when I asked them to. All right. Second letter, equally creepy. If it was me, I would immediately call the police and have them question the Woods. Say, did you, you know, did anybody convince you that it was time to sell the house? Like that kind of stuff. There are a lot of people that are very, very interested in this story that says that the second letter says that there's secrets inside the house, probably bodies. I personally don't read that in the letter. Like, it does say, like, have you found all the secrets it holds? I get that. Will the young blood play in the basement? Look, I don't think they're saying there are actual secrets in the walls or in the basement or bodies or anything like that. I mean, there could be, for all I fucking know. But there are a lot of people out there that say this the second letter is the clue that there are bodies in the house. I personally, I don't see that. Alrighty, so anyhow, they go to the police... And the police was like, yep, there's another letter. Keep it to yourselves. Don't mention it to anybody. Instead, Derek, Maria, and the kids go to a neighbor's barbecue across the street that they were invited to. Now, they said they did it uh, to uh, like kind of question the neighbors. So I guess that's a good idea, but it's still, why the kids? There's no place else these kids couldn't, like, it couldn't just be Derek and say, hey, Maria and the other kids, you stay at the old house. I'm going to go and question the new neighbors. Why did all the whole family have to go there? So uh, Derek starts to talk with John Schmidt, who is a neighbor two doors down from 657 Boulevard, the Broadus' house. One house between them was owned by another family. He found out that Peggy Lanford owned the house next to 657. Now, Peggy Lanford was over 90 years old, but lived in the house with several of her adult children. Each was at least 60 years of age. Now, the neighbor, John, did say that the family was odd or kind of eccentric, however you want to word it, uh, but he didn't think they posed a threat. He mentioned one son in particular, though. That was the youngest son, Michael. He said he was unemployed, wore a very thick, had it like, not wore, had a very thick beard, and that the Langfords have lived there since the mid-60s. So Derek, uh, like, relays all of this information to Detective Lugo after the barbecue, and surprise, the detective had already brought Michael in for questioning about a week after the first letter arrived. Now, Michael obviously said he had nothing to do with the letters, but the detective told Derek he really didn't believe Michael and for Derek to keep an eye on him too. There's a lot of people, again, that like are really into this um, story, the, the watcher, who say, like all these like armchair detective kind of things, who say it fits perfectly the wording of the first letter. Michael's dad died 
20 years prior. And in the letter, he said that, like, I am the new watcher, my father before him and the grandfather before him. The timeline seems to kind of um, match up with the Langford dad that had passed away about 20 years ago would sync up with one of the Langford children having to take on this responsibility to watch 657 Boulevard and keep up as being one of the watchers. Do I believe that? Yeah, I kind of, it, it kind of makes sense. Alrighty, so um, the detective thought the watcher was definitely an immediate neighbor close to the house, probably behind or in the immediate side of the house so that the watcher could see and hear things easily from their own house. And they did find that the letters all had a local postmark on them, so whoever was sending them was definitely local. The first letter was postmarked June 4th, which again was before the house was even publicly went on the market. And at no time did the uh, the Woods, the, the, the family that sold the house to the Broadduses, use a standard for sale sign in front of the house, so there should have been no way for the watcher to know that the house was up for sale. So the letter that was sent to the to the uh, to the woods seemed to know things that it shouldn't that the watchers shouldn't have known that the woods were definitely selling the house. Now the woods actually had contractors on the property a day before the first one of the letters was sent, but no one close to the house had any idea that the work would be begun on the house. When the detectives interviewed the rest of the neighbors, they said we didn't even know the house was for sale or that it was being worked on until the Broadduses moved in or started to move in and had their construction guys set up. So, the Broadduses, again, still haven't moved completely into the new house, but uh, they definitely got a little bit more freaked out. They stopped bringing the kids by about damn time, as far as I'm concerned, and for the next couple of weeks, all was quiet again. Until, you guessed it, a third letter, which this letter gets real loopy. 657 Boulevard is turning on me. It is coming after me. I don't understand why. What spell did you cast on it? It used to be my friend, and now it is my enemy. I am in charge of 657 Boulevard. It is not in charge of me. I will fend off its bad things and wait for you to become the good again. Wait for, wait for it to become good again. It will not punish me. I will rise again. I will be patient and wait for this to pass and for you to bring the young blood back to me. 657 Boulevard needs young blood. It needs you. Come back. Let the young blood play again like I once did. Let the young blood sleep in 657 Boulevard. Stop changing it and let it alone. All right. See? Creepy, right? So, obviously, this scares Derek and Maria again as it should. So uh, they set up webcams inside and outside the house. They install an alarm system. And get this, Derek even did a stakeout in his car outside the house. Plus, most importantly, Derek uh, tries to hire like private investigators who tell him, look, there's no fingerprints on the letters or the envelopes, so no leads there. Derek puts an ad in a local paper saying he wants to hire a bodyguard with military experience and a German shepherd and he also somehow, doesn't really ever say how, he contacts a former FBI agent, Robert Lenahan, Lenahan, I don't know, who uh, gave him a possible profile of the sender. That uh, FBI agent felt that whoever wrote the letters was well-read. The absence of vulgar or crass language was surprising. The author was someone that was less macho 
that was less macho than what people might suspe- might suspect. Uh, Lena Han or Lean Han also wondered if the author had been had seen or been inspired by the Keanu Reeves film of the same title, The Watcher. He considered the author to be erratic, but unlikely to follow through on any threats. He also told uh, Derek that he should check out former housekeepers or their offspring because they're probably persons of interest. All right. You know, I think it's a bold statement to be like, he's probably not going to follow through on any threats, but sure, why not? All right. So with this new letter, Detective Lugo brings Michael in for questioning again, Michael Langford. But still, he says, I couldn't break him. And the Langford family themselves started complaining they're being harassed by the police and the Broadduses. But Derek was now convinced, yep, it's Michael. And I got to say, I'm not exactly 100% sure why all of a sudden, but um, Derek's like, yep, it's got to be Michael. So he hires a lawyer, Lee Levitt. The lawyer meets with the Langford family and their lawyer and outlawed and outlined why they thought the Langfords were like the main suspects. So they're basically kind of tipping their hat. In my opinion, at this point, you know, if you definitely think it's Michael Langford, then keep an eye on Michael Langford. Don't go to him and be like, I know it's you, man. I know it's you. The Langfords are already lawyering up. You're lawyering up. You're spending money you don't have. You have already said you're like tapped out completely on buying this new house with all of the money that you guys had. And yet you're spending a hell of a lot of money on private eyes and former FBI agents and trying to get a bodyguard with military experience and a German shepherd. Look, you keep it close to the vest. You keep going to the police because they're going to do their job. But you keep an eye on that Michael Langford, if this was me. Because like I said, they're the Broadduses, they shot their wad. This was everything. They spent everything they had on this house. And they said they couldn't lose it. So while all of this is going on with the lawyers and everything else, uh, Detective Lugo found out a couple of things about the neighborhood. He said that two of the local neighbors were registered sex offenders. That seems bad. And while he was driving around the neighborhood, he found it odd that another house close to the Broadduses kept a pair of lawn chairs very close to the Broadduses' garden and faced it directly. So, quote, to keep an eye on that family as well, there's something up with them. Okay, good advice. That seems kind of creepy. Or you go to that family and be like, hey, can you move these these lawn chairs? Like, you don't have to tell them about the letters. Keep that a closely guarded secret. But can you move your lawn chairs? And I, that's one thing I don't understand is, has Detective Lugo brought up the letters to the Langfords? Because he's bringing them in repeatedly at this point. Someone must have brought up the letters at this point, but it doesn't sound like that's the case. Alrighty, so none of this had any, like, leads. They couldn't figure out who the Watcher was. But Derek and Maria were like, you know what? I don't even want to move into this new house. So six months after getting the first letter, they decide to sell the new home. Now, they eventually sold it in 2019 for a $400,000 or $500,000 loss, but we're not to that point yet. We're still in 2017. They tried a couple of things with the house first. They were going to try to uh, tear it down and subdivide it into two lots and then build two smaller houses and sell those. But the neighborhood was like, nope, you can't do that. It's against our neighborhood code or whatever, so you can't do that. The house has to stay exactly like it is. So the Langfords were, or I'm sorry, the um, the Broadduses were kind of stuck. 
they had this house. They couldn't afford to sell it. They tried to put it up on the market. Still 2017. It wouldn't sell for another two years. So they, uh, well, I was going to say they rented it, but I'm, I'm jumping ahead in the story. So while they're doing all of this, a DNA test on one of the envelopes results comes back in to the police department. It indicates the DNA was feminine. So they immediately go, okay, it's not Michael Langford, but the police are now suspecting the sister Abby Langford. So a security guard swipes a water bottle from her trash, and it turns out that DNA doesn't match the DNA that's on the envelopes. So Detective Lugo reopens the case and asks Andrea Woods to provide a DNA sample. They question their 21-year-old son, And get this, when Lugo reopened investigations, like when he reopened the investigation and the news about the Broadus' letter got out to the neighborhood, it turns out the watcher had sent a letter to another house around the same time as the first letter to the Broadus's. But, like the Woods did, this other family threw the letter away thinking it was just a prank. But the family did confirm to the police that the letter they got was very similar to the one that Derek received in the first letter. So, yeah, maybe you should have gotten this news story out just a little bit earlier there, Lugo, and told people about the letters to find out this kind of information. Now, it turns out it wasn't Andrea Wood's DNA, wasn't her 21-year-old son's DNA. So another detective, Detective Chambly or Chambliss, uh, and, and his partner, they got on the case. First thing they did, they did a stakeout on the street one evening for about a week. And one evening at about 11 p.m., a car parked close to their van and remained there long enough that it seemed intentional, right in front of the Broadus' house. So the police traced the vehicle back to a young woman that lived in a nearby town, her boyfriend who, quote, loves dark video games, lived on the same block as the Broadus' house. They think that's enough to go on, so they question, <clears throat> pardon me, they think that's enough to go on, so they question her. And she says the game is called something like The Watcher. Now, I got to say, I looked into it. I couldn't find a Watcher video game around 2017. I found the Witcher video game, but not a Watcher video game. But maybe I just didn't find it. Maybe I missed it. So um, she says, yeah, my boyfriend loves to play a game. It's called something like The Watcher. And they asked the boyfriend to come down to the police station. But since he, they didn't have any evidence, he wasn't technically a suspect, they just, you know, hey, can you please come down? And he wasn't required, so he was like, yeah, no thanks, I'm good. So while all of that stuff's going on, the Broadduses find renters who knew about the letters now because the word got out, didn't care, but were um, eager, well, not eager, they were willing to move into the house. So, yeah, they rented the house out to these renters. They just moved in. And for two weeks, everything was quiet until, yep, you guessed it, they received a letter. You wonder who the watcher is? Turn around, idiots. Maybe you even spoke to me. One of the so-called neighbors who has no idea who the watcher could be. Or maybe you do know and you're too scared to tell anyone. Good move. I walked by the news trucks when they took over my neighborhood and mocked me. I watched as you watched from the dark house and attempt to find me. Telescopes and binoculars are wonderful inventions. 657 Boulevard survived your attempted assault and stood strong with its army of supporters barricading its gates. 
My soldiers of the boulevard followed my orders to a T. They carried out their mission and saved the soul of 657 Boulevard with my orders. All hail the Watcher. Oh, I'm sorry. It keeps going. Oh, God. I almost ended it too early. Maybe a car accident. Maybe a fire. Maybe something as simple as a mild illness that never seems to go away but makes you feel sick. Day after day after day after day. Maybe the mysterious death of a pet. Nope, don't like that one. Loved ones suddenly die. Planes and cars and bicycles crash. Bones break. That's how they ended. That was the final Watcher letter. Basically, this letter, when they kind of broke it down, said, yep, you guys tried to tear down the house, but we wouldn't, you know, the family wouldn't let you, all the neighborhood watchers wouldn't let you. He calls them the army of supporters barricading its gates, the soldiers of the boulevard, whatever you want to call it. But um, it talks about uh, shutting off all the lights to try and, you know, keep an eye on the neighborhood, the people standing out there trying to watch, or not standing out there, but like uh, staking out, trying to watch the house or find the watcher. But that was the final watcher letter. To this day, no one knows who sent the letters, but the top suspects are a Langford family member. That's kind of where I'm at. It's got to be a Langford family member. Also, I would hope that they did DNA samples on all the letters because maybe they got it messed up and maybe it wasn't a feminine DNA strain. Maybe it was masculine. But my guess is it's one of the Langford family members. And that seems to be like the main suspect. Well, one of the main suspects that a lot of the armchair detectives think it is. But a lot of people online also say the other neighbors, you know, the ones that set up their lawn chairs to watch the Broadus's house. It was them. They were never really investigated. They never had their DNA taken. It might have been them. But the big one that a lot of people online think it is, that it was the Broadduses themselves. That's right. Derek and Maria did it. Now, the um, explanation, if you will, for why a lot of people think that is partly because the first letter um, was because they got kind of, I'm sorry, it was because they kind of overextend themselves. They couldn't afford their house. They did it to themselves. But my problem with that, now I get to this point. My problem with that is the first letter showed up before they bought the house or moved in. Why would this, why would the Broadduses have to go through this amazing charade during the time of escrow? When the house was in escrow, they had time to get out of the purchase basically free and clear. If they really were overextended, they really were like, shit, they had like buyer's remorse, They're like, shit, I can't afford this house. Why'd we do it? We got to get out of this. They had time to. They didn't have to send the stupid first letter. They could have just gotten out of it. So a lot of people online say it's Derek and Maria. They did it to themselves. I just don't know. I just don't buy it, but I don't know who it is. My guess is it's the Langfords, but why did they stop sending letters? Like I said, the house sold in 2019. Is, is the new family still receiving letters? There's been no word about it. People have been wondering, are they getting the letters too? I don't know, but it's weird, right? A very weird one, not necessarily paranormal. So with that, let's bump up the paranormal with this next one. Okay, this next case is called the Rain Man. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, sure, he could count toothpicks really fast, but I don't think he was psychic or anything paranormal, Kurt. But no, no, no. This is a different Rain Man. The Rain Man. Now, this one happened in 1983. 
to 21-year-old Don Decker of Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania. So good old Don was in county jail for a four to 12 month sentence of receiving stolen property when his grandfather, James Kishog, doesn't matter, James, he's a dick, you'll find out in a minute. Uh, his grandfather, James, died. So they give Don a furlough to go home for the funeral. Later, it'll be discovered that the grandfather abused Don from seven years old on. I add this, well, <clears throat> I add this, you'll see why in a minute. Alrighty, so like I said, uh, the old dick grandfather dies, Don flies home for the funeral, or leaves the, the jail to go to the funeral. So the funeral goes as well as a funeral can, and uh, afterwards, Don decides to stay with his friends Bob and Jeannie Kiefer. So Don was in the upstairs bathroom washing up for supper when he fell to the floor and said he had a vision of an old man wearing a crown in a window. That's right, old man wearing a crown in a window. No idea what that means. He also says that deep scratches suddenly appeared on his wrist. He immediately leaves the bathroom, runs downstairs to go eat with Bob and Jeannie. He starts to tell him about what just happened upstairs and then also opens up about the abuse his grandfather did to him as a boy. While he's doing it, uh, Bob and Jeannie say that, that Don is getting angrier and angrier. Don himself later said he felt deep chills, and that's when Bob and Jeannie noticed something strange. Water began to drip from the living room walls as Don slipped into, quote, a strange trance-like state. So at first, Bob and Jeannie were like, well, he was just upstairs in the bathroom. Maybe he left the water running. Maybe a pipe burst. Something's happening. They go and check in the bathroom upstairs. Water's not on. So they're like, crap, a pipe burst. They call the landlord. And they went to take care of Don because, as you remember, he's in a strange trance-like state at this moment. They said, uh, we said, we decided maybe it was the plumbing, but there were no pipes in the front end of the house to leak. There was basically nothing there that the water could have come from. So after watching it for a while, I discovered I wasn't the only one coming. I discovered that it wasn't only coming from the ceiling down. It would come from the wall over or from the floor up. Basically, there was no basic direction that it was coming from. It could come from anywhere. And all three people said, yep, the water wasn't coming from, it wasn't flowing down the wall from the, from the top or out of a pipe. Like if a pipe broke in the middle of the wall, it wasn't just coming out of one spot. It was going from the floor up. It was coming from the wall down, floor uh, ceiling down. It was basically just coming from anywhere, seemingly without a source. Alrighty, so the landlord comes, takes a look at it. He telephones his wife, Romaine. For some reason, he also calls the police. While waiting for the police, a local friend who worked across the street, she came by and she said it was sideways rain that was coming from nowhere. Then, patrolman Richard Walbart and John Bujan, Bujan, Bahan, I don't know, showed up. And they, uh, and in the interviews, the uh, officer, Richard Walbart, he says, at this point, he was telling me, I just want you to walk into the house. I said, I'm not walking into the house unless you explain to me what I'm walking into. He says, trust me, trust me, just walk into the house. So I walk in the door and he came right in behind me and I couldn't get two steps inside the door and I was absolutely pelted. The other officer 
said that it was not only raining inside, but that the water drops defied physics. He said, we were standing just inside the front door and met this droplet of water traveling horizontally. It passed between us and just traveled out into the next room. Uh, the other cop, he also said, I literally had a chill going up my spine, made the hair stand up on, my, on your neck. That's how I felt. This was a situation where things were happening that I have never, ever dreamed could possibly happen. And there was no way of explaining what was going on. So the police, they're stumped. They're scared. They go, they're like, fuck it, I'm out of here. This is obviously not a job for the cops. There's a bunch of sideways rain going on inside a house. And they uh, go back to the police station and they tell the police chief, you know, what the hell they were seeing and told everyone, they, the, the cops were like, hey, you guys got to get out of this freaky rain in house. We're getting out of here. We're going to go tell the police chief. We don't know what the hell's going on. It's not for the police. Everybody leave the house. So cops go back to the police station. They tell the police chief. The landlord and his wife stay behind because they're trying to salvage their rental house, their house. You know, there's still rain, you know, weird rain going on. The landlord said they left and everyone else left too. Everything else left too. The rain stopped. The house was normal. We we're kind of thinking that maybe it was coming from them and we weren't sure. At that time, which one, like, which one of them, basically. He's trying to say, like, when they left, boom, the rain stopped, the house was normal. We thought it's got to be coming from one of those three. It's either Don or it's the other two, which I can't think of their names off the top of my head. Uh, Bob and Jeannie. It's got to be either Don, Bob, or Jeannie. It's got to be one of those, but they didn't know which one it was. So Pam, the neighbor who saw the rain, well, she was working across the street at the pizza place, and everybody came over to the the pizza place after being told, you know, like leave the house by the cops. They were like, well, we couldn't, we didn't eat dinner. The house started having weird rain. So let's go to the pizza place and get some dinner. So Pam said, you looked at Donnie and he was like in a trance. He would look at you, but not knowing you were there. I said to Jeannie, he's got to be possessed. We're sitting there. A couple of seconds later, there's water all over the pizzeria too. I've never seen anything like that happen. I went in the cash register and I had a crucifix there. I took it out and I put it on him. The minute I put it on him and it touched its and it touched his skin, he got burned. There's no way that anybody could have played a joke like that. This was real. Donnie was doing it to himself. He was doing it without realizing he was doing it. Later in interviews, Don would say, that made me even more sure that I had something to do with it because it was following me. And it didn't start raining in the house until I got there. They were living there and nothing ever happened. And that's when I started realizing that it was me. All right. Not surprisingly, they tell everybody to get the hell out of the pizza place. So they go back to the wet house where the landlord's wife accused Don of causing everything. Again, in interviews, Don later said, the pots and pans over the stove started rattling. That's when I got levitated off the floor. I was just like floating. Then it was like a push. It wasn't like somebody taking their hands and pushing me. It was like feeling it all over your body at once. Now, I'm a big guy, you know. I've always been assertive, and that made me feel like a newborn. He said, make me felt like a newborn, but whatever. He says, uh, you know, I'm scared right now just talking about it, really. All righty, so... 
what's her name? The the landlord's wife stops yelling basically at Donnie. Things start to quiet down. The police come back with the police chief and the cops later said, when the chief got to the house, he was pelted with water just as Rich and I were. Now I got the impressions that he was put on the spot, maybe a little embarrassed, like we expected something out of him that he could answer. There was no way to explain what happened. I think he was put in a position where he might've felt a little uncomfortable. So the chief, either out of fear or stupidity, said, oh, no, 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 it's the plumbing. And he left. And he told the cops, don't you file a report about this and don't you ever talk to anyone about this ever. The cops said, well, he just flat out denied it. Didn't happen. And he tried to convince me that nothing happened and he wasn't going to do it. He wasn't going to do that. I saw it and that's all there is to it. So, of course, the cops don't listen to the police chief and they tell all the other cops. By the next day, um, they go back in, uh, they went back to the Kiefer home with another officer, Officer Bill Davies, who later said in interviews, we're standing there and I gave Mr. Decker the gold cross to hold. Next thing he says, it's burning my hands. And there was no explanation for it. When you picked it up, when you grabbed it, it's not hot, hot, but it's hot. And I held on to it. Don apparently also started levitating in the floor, right uh, off the floor, right in front of the police, including this new officer. Says all of a sudden he lifted up off the ground and he flew across the room with the force as though a bus had hit him. There were three red claw marks on the side of his neck, which drew blood. I have no answer for it whatsoever, and I just draw a blank even today. Another cop said, I've been a cop 40 years. I've never seen anything like this, never. There's always an explanation when something happens. If you go to, if you got to investigate, you come up with something. This is why it happened. For this case, there is no explanation. All right, enough was enough. The landlord saw the, the floating and the being thrown against the wall and the cops being all freaked out. And he's like, no, nope, screw this. So he starts calling around for local priests to come over and perform an exorcism, but he gets turned down by basically every you know, priest in town. Basically, no priest wanted anything to do with this house. So the landlord's wife goes, well, you know what? I'm going to do it, which to me, Kurt, sounds like a bad idea. But Ron, the landlord, said, as she started to pray, Donnie went into, went into a convulsion. He started to shake. He pulled himself up like a ball. He pulled himself up like a ball. And the longer she prayed, he started to relax. Then his whole body seemed to quiet down completely. And as you're standing there watching this, you could feel the house itself seemed to take on a totally different feeling. Uh, he said by the time she got done praying, the water was gone. And that was the last we saw any water at that house ever. Alrighty, so Don is apparently all better. You know, he's still on furlough. He's, you know, he's got to go back to jail. So they're like, all right, time to go back to jail. So Don says, they put me in a maximum security cell. I was in there with another inmate and I was thinking, I should make it rain in here. And all of a sudden, water stuttered coming out of the concrete floor. And at that point, I thought, yep. I can do stuff. He told the guards that he was causing it. Not surprisingly, the guards didn't believe him. So a guard challenged him. He said, all right, make it rain in Warden Dave Keenhold's office. Later, Warden Keenhold would say, I was sitting at a desk writing a report. 
I was all by myself in the administration area. Nothing else, nobody else was around. It was approximately eight o'clock in the evening. At that time, I didn't feel anything, but my shirt was drooping down. So this officer comes in. He wants to see if, you know, it's raining in Warden Keenhold's office. And he looks at the, the warden's shirt. And the warden says, right about the center of my sternum, about four inches long, two inches wide, I was just saturated with water. I was startled. I was scared. The officer was frightened at that particular time. And I just didn't have an explanation why it happened. To me, though, to Kurt, uh, Kurt speaking, he was sweaty. That's all it sounds like to me. It sounds like he had nipple sweat, but it scared the warden. So obviously it's more than just nipple sweat. It must have been just like drenched sweat coming out of the center of his chest, but he just doesn't describe it well, apparently. All right, so the warden called Reverend William Blackburn, who later said, all of a sudden I received this frantic call from a sergeant in the jail, and he says, can you come over now? We need you. We need your help. So he brought this... um very meek and mild-mannered young man into the room. That's how the priest describes him, the reverend. And uh, he was asking for my help. Don told the reverend that he could make it rain and that crosses placed on his body would burn him. Uh, The reverend basically didn't believe him and uh, later said, all of a sudden his demeanor changed and this smell came into the room. Nurses and doctors, medical people say when you walk into a room, where someone is dying with a cancer or something, there's usually a smell. You can tell when you walk in the room. I smelled a smell like that multiplied five times at least. That smell was evil, foreboding. He raised his hands and rubbed his fingers together, and all of a sudden, it started to rain. It was like the devil's rain. It was a mist. I was in the presence of evil, so I opened up the Bible and started to read to him, but the pages never got wet. So help me, it was a frightening, frightening thing. I think I was praying more for me than for him. I prayed, and it was only a brief period when the rain stopped. That's when the reverend said he noticed that sudden change in Don, was like, oh, well, he's good. The reverend said he subsided, and you could feel a peace. He said, thank you. He got tears in his eyes. We hugged and prayed together. I think he was possessed. There was no doubt in my mind. There is no way a human could do what he did in that room. There's no way that he did anything, but what he did was spiritual, and it wasn't of God. Guaranteed, it was not of God. So Don says, all right, it's over. It hasn't happened again. Basically, I'm just hoping it never will, and I just, you know, go day by day. As for my grandfather, I think what happened was his doing. Because he abused me when I was young, he got a chance to abuse me again. That's a cra- That's a fucked up ending to this story. Um, and that's basically the ending of the story. What happened to Don? Well, years later, he was accused of arson, and he went back to prison. Uh, which I got to say, it's kind of funny that the guy that could make it rain is accused of burning things. But I guess it's not really funny. It's kind of fucked up. But a lot of people think that it was a poltergeist-type event you know, brought on because of the abuse of the grandpa that he did back when he was like seven. And I can kind of get behind that idea, that, that explanation. But to this day, there are a ton of witnesses. All of them are like more than willing to be interviewed repeatedly. They all say what they saw was real. They don't know what happened, how it happened, but somehow 
Don could make water or rain or mist happen and seem to be possessed. See? A little bit more paranormal, wasn't it? All right, so grain of salt time. There was a witness comment from an article about Don. I was reading all these articles about Don, and uh, one of the guys in the comment section said, I keep reading all of these comments and wish people would believe in spirits and the afterlife. This event of Donald Decker was very real to me as a young... Oh, it's a girl. I'm sorry. This comes from a girl. Uh, she said, this, uh, this event of Donald Decker was very real to me as a young girl sitting in that restaurant as it rained, an experience that changed my life that day. As well as seeing it firsthand, my family worked, works and has for many decades at the Monroe, Monroe County Country Club Correctional Facility and has told me many stories of how how it was while he was a resident there. Yes, video cameras were out then, but not everyone had one. I remember my dad saying the day in the pizzeria, he wished he had a video camera to get proof of this. It would be something no one would ever believe. He thought about going down the street to the store to buy a disposable camera, but didn't because the rain stopped shortly after that. It haunted my dreams for years. I would wake up saying it was raining on my whatever. Now, over 30 years later, and I can still visualize that day as though it was yesterday. The at first laughing because it seemed like a cool trick to the nightmares that followed for years later. It's not something you can just forget, and I promise you, if you ever go through an experience close to this one, you won't either. Yeah, there's a couple of things that I liked about this, uh, besides the fact that she said she was a witness, she was in the pizzeria when it started to rain. But she mentioned, because a lot of people are like, hey, this happened, you know, whatever year it was, 19, let me go back to the beginning of this synopsis. Um, you know, they're basically 1983. Oh, it happened in 1983? Why didn't you just take a video of it? All right, look, I get it, young people. You just assume that people, you know, you have a video camera and a phone, you know, and a camera on your phone with you at all times. That's not how it was in 1983. I think maybe my uncle had a video camera and that was about it. I mean, they were they were expensive. Not a lot of people had them in 83. And even with a camera, you didn't walk around with your, you know, your film camera all the time. Not a lot of people did. So yeah, there is a good chance that they didn't have a camera or a video camera on them. There wouldn't be any proof. Even though it's from the 80s and not like the 20s, still not a lot of people walked around with cameras and especially video cameras. All righty, let's keep going actually. I know I'm already past the hour mark, and usually it's where I end it, but I'm going to do another one. Another bizarre one, hence the name of this episode. Now, this was brought to me by a listener and my personal friend, Brian. He was like, hey, have you ever heard this story? And again, I was like, holy shit, this is a cool story. I got to talk about it sometime, but I don't know when I'm going to be able to. Well, this episode is when I'm going to be able to. All right, this one comes from... April 1922. That's right. April 1922 in Brittany, France. This is the story of Pauline Picard's bizarre disappearance. That's right. Picard, like Captain Picard from Star Trek. All righty. In April 1922, two-year-old Pauline Picard disappeared while playing on her family's farm in the village of, and I apologize to everybody in France right now, I'm going to get this wrong, in the village of Gauzaladou. Sure, it's in Brittany. It's in northwest France in Brittany. Uh, boom, just gone. Pauline, two-year-old Pauline, just disappears. Now, the family couldn't find her, 
So they get all of the townspeople to help search. That same day that she went missing, more than 150 people searched the farm, the woods, the surrounding areas thoroughly. The surrounding woods, nothing. They couldn't find any sign of poor little two-year-old Pauline. Now, the family, after a few days, assumed that Pauline wandered off from the farm and either succumbed to the cold or had been killed and eaten by a wild boar, and that's why her body was never found. That's a pretty, you know, grim assumption. But 1922, what are you going to do? All right, so the townsfolk, they thought they had a good suspect, though. They said, I don't think it's going to be that wild boar. We think it was this chimney sweep, this creepy guy that was walking around, that we saw walking around the farms in the area right around the time Pauline disappeared. Now, another neighbor said, nope, I think it's these two strangers who, who, who they, I, you know, I saw them hanging around the farm just before Pauline went missing. Other townsfolk went, nope, nope. I think it's the gypsies, but honestly, no real reason why other than French people hate gypsies, apparently. All right, so the police spent the next month checking every one of these leads, but no real suspects were ever found. No leads. Then, the end of May. you got to remember, this happened in April 1922. And by the end of May, the police arrive at the farm with the photograph of a little girl who had been found wandering alone in the city of Cherbourg, which is about 217 miles away from Brittany. So this little girl was found wandering alone in the city on foot. It said that she was found abandoned in the hallway of a local home on Rue Coipel and was brought to a hospice. Now, the little girl was seen a few days earlier in town with a poorly clothed woman who tried to abandon the little girl in a store, but was chased down and given the child back. The store owners were like, yeah, uh, yeah, Dump, dumping this little girl on us. Take your little kid and get the hell out of here. So, parents see the photo from the cops, and they go, yep, that's Pauline. And they immediately took a train to Cherbourg to try and uh, to bring their missing daughter home, basically. So, end of the story. Weird, right? Oh, wait, nope. There's a lot more. So, the family get in town. They, the parents, they go to town. And when they see her, they go, hmm, I don't know if that's really Pauline. They uh, they start to question it. They go, well, I've never seen these clothes that this little girl Pauline has on. She didn't, Pauline herself didn't seem to really recognize the parents, but was completely uh, mute. From the time they found her and they brought her to the hospice, this little girl was mute. Uh, the parents try to speak to her in their local language. I think it's called like Breton, something like that. And she didn't seem to understand the language. So the parents spend the next few days with her and then go, yeah, it must be her. So they take her with them because I guess that's just what people did in 1922. Before they, uh, they left, the locals asked, "How are you sure it's her? And the dad went, oh, yeah, of course. She has the same hair and the same blue eyes. Good enough for us. So they take fake Pauline with them. So, uh, Fake Pauline, turns out, might not be so fake because on the train ride home, she actually spoke three words in Breton, that weird local language. Then, when she gets home, she starts asking for the family's cat by name in the local language, 
asking for bread in Britain or whatever the hell that local language was as well. So it seems like now, oh crap, this actually is Pauline. All right, cool. Happy ending, right? Nope. Remember, Pauline went missing in April. Found in May. The end of May 1922, a farmer crossing a field about a mile from the farm discovers the horribly mutilated and decomposing body of a small girl, naked with the head cut off and put by the body. If that wasn't bad enough, close by, carefully folded, were the clothes which Pauline had been wearing on the day she went missing, just, you know, neatly folded out there. So the farmer rushes to the village, returns with the police. The whole town hears about this. They head out to see the body. The Picards hear about this. They immediately go out there and go, oh, crap. They immediately recognize the folded up clothes as the clothes that Pauline had on when she went missing. Now, unfortunately, no one was able to recognize the face of the beheaded girl because it had been partially eaten by foxes. Here's what's even weirder. The spot they found the body was searched repeatedly by those 150 people, and the body was not there during the search. Still not weird enough? Okay, how about this? The examinations of the remains was done. The severed head? They went, that's kind of abnormally large for a child. Well, later it found out that it was an adult male's head which had been partly eaten by foxes. Strangely, her her torso and stomach were intact, and they said, that's odd. That's what the foxes should have gone for, that being a body part often eaten by scavengers. No cause of death was determined. The stomach was empty due to starvation. The final report stated that Pauline probably froze to death after becoming lost, but... It doesn't explain the weird shit like the clothes being all neatly folded, the dude's head by the body, the fact that she was decapitated, the fact that the searched area was, you know, was searched repeatedly and there was no body there by the 150 townspeople. But again, you know, oh well, it's 1922. Close that case. Then, even weirder. A middle-aged farmer, Yves Martin, visited the Picards and said he understood their daughter had been found. When told that, yeah, we found the body, he asked, are you sure it's Pauline's? And they said, yeah, the body was Pauline's. And he said, God forgive me, I am guilty, before laughing maniacally and running from the farm. The following day, he was taken to a lunatic asylum because he was, quote, raving mad. So, yeah, let's just assume that's the guy that killed the real Pauline, okay? All right, so what about that uh, now really fake Pauline? They went, oh, well, it's definitely not her, and they shipped her back to the place they got her, and many sites say, sadly, she died several months later of the measles. Here come the questions. All right, whose freaking head was it? Why isn't that a bigger story? They all said, every site that I could find, the news articles and everything said, no other person was missing. There was no guy that went missing. So whose freaking head was that? Um, Why didn't they ever get Maniacal Laugh Guy to admit that he killed Pauline? And just who the hell was that dude? 
Um, how did fake Pauline know a few words in this Breton language and the name of the cat? What the hell, 1922? What the hell? So, uh, yep, really bizarre and really still unsolved. All right, that about does it for this edition of uh, Bizarre Unsolved Mysteries. What do you guys think? What was the strangest one for you guys on here? Was it the Rain Man and him being possessed? Was it the Watcher? Something that just happened just recently, just a few years ago. Was it the uh, the two Paulines in the head? Like, like, what the hell? Each one of these stories leaves you with more questions than answers. And there's a lot of people with a lot of opinions about all three stories online. So now you guys can be uh, one of those people with a lot of opinions about these bizarre stories online. Because I got no answers. I just have bizarre unsolved mysteries. All righty. Like I said, that about does it for this edition. I hope you guys like this one. Once again, I'm your host, Kurt Sandvig, and this has been another bizarre edition of Paranormal Almanac. Ich bin der Mann, der Hemsen, die Lachbüste ist ja.